are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hi, everybody. David Guzik here, and I'm here for another weekly question and answer time here on my YouTube channel. This week, again, I'm not able to do it live. I'll tell you exactly what I'm doing at 12 noon on Thursday this week. I'm speaking at a luncheon for Child Evangelism Fellowship, which is a fantastic ministry which ministers unto children and evangelizes children and does a wonderful job in our own community of Santa Barbara and I know all over the world. So I'm happy to speak at this luncheon. I regret that it doesn't give me the opportunity to speak with you all live, but as is my custom, when I can't speak with you live at 12 noon Pacific time on a Thursday, I pre-record something with some of the questions that come in through email or on social media or in response to our YouTube videos. So uh, here's the question that comes up that I want to deal with first. It's actually kind of a two-part question. The first question is sort of a follow-up from something we dealt with last week, dealing with a specific issue. And it has to do with a fellow in the Christian world, comes from a Reformed background, uh, who says that it's okay, or not okay, but that a person could accept the mark of the beast and still be saved. Uh, now, I, I got to do a lot of explaining around this question. Let me just say first that the other part of this question gets back to how far is too far about, you know, should we say yes or no, recommend or push people away from people like this? How should we regard this? Okay, so let me get down to the first thing about the mark of the beast. I think it's a very interesting question because I don't want there to be any great mystery about this. The, the man who said this was John MacArthur. And though I haven't researched what he said in great depth, it was something to the effect of this, that a person receiving the mark from the Antichrist, whether it be on their hand or their forehead, uh, to buy or sell may not necessarily mean that they go to hell. And I, I need to talk about that question then. But first thing I got to say and just remind everybody that really this is a meaningful question only to one segment of the Christian world. There's a fairly substantial segment of the Christian world that believes all this stuff in the book of Revelation. And forgive me if you thought that by saying all this stuff, I meant that in a dismissive way. I don't mean it at all, but all the details, let me put it that way. All the details of the book of Revelation having to do with the Antichrist and his economic system and his political system and all the rest of it. There is a good number of people in the Christian world today and throughout history who believe that's all symbolic and metaphoric. And I can just imagine someone like that tuning into a broadcast like this and saying, this is crazy to take this stuff so seriously. Well, I got to say that I myself and many, many others in the Christian world, we do take it this seriously. And so we do ask these questions that I completely get it. To other segments of the Christian world, it seems like a nonsensical question to ask. But let's get back to it. The book of Revelation in chapter 13 talks about a world ruler, a world leader that is often called the Antichrist. Um, that's sort of a slang name for him almost. The book of Revelation itself calls this great ruler the beast. And then it says he has an associate, sometimes known as the false prophet. But again, uh, in popular thinking, it's not 
technically true or not all the way technically true biblically that this person should be understood to be the Antichrist, but you get the idea. Okay, now this world ruler described in the book of Revelation, chapter 13, verses 16 and 17, it says this. Again, I'm reading Revelation chapter 13, verses 16 and 17. It says, He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark of the name of the beast or the number of his name. So the idea here is some kind of identification, some mark that will govern the ability to buy and sell. Now, of course, we look around at the world today and we see that the technology for this is present. It's even being used some kind of microchip or some kind of thing uh, uh, that, that could be put again on a person's forehead or on them and, and be a portal through which they can do uh, their buying and selling. Look, I, I use my phone to pay for things all the time now, and it's not an extension thing that same thing that would trigger the system in the phone to put it in a hand or in a forehead. We, we get that idea. Okay. Now, that just states in Revelation chapter 13, verses 16 and 17, that this coming world leader, now again, I, I have to say, I regard him, many others regard him as coming. There are other whole segments of Christians that regard him as being in the past and speaking things in the past, but in any regard. We, we also need to understand that the book of Revelation also spells out some pretty plain consequences for the taking of the this mark. For example, in Revelation chapter 14, verses 9 through 11, it says this, then an angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark, uh, receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is pulled out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Again, that's Revelation chapter 14 verses 9 and 10. It says the consequence for receiving this mark is to drink, to have God's wrath poured upon you. Something very similar in Revelation chapter 16, verse 2, where it says, So the first went out and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And then finally, Revelation chapter 19, verse 20 says this, Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake, burning with brimstone. Okay, so you have the mark, and then you have the consequence of taking the mark. Now, this is what I believe. I, I believe that John MacArthur was making a valid point. How well he made the point, I'd have to listen and do more research for that to really say it. But let, let me just say this. I think what he was trying to get at was simply this, that taking the mark of the beast is not only a function of participating in the economy. Several times in the book of Revelation, it links taking the mark of the beast to worshiping the beast and his image. Let me read you again from Revelation chapter 14, verse 9. 
If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand. And then in Revelation chapter 16, verse 2, I'll read that to you again. Upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Let me read you again from Revelation chapter 19, verse 20. Those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. I think what John MacArthur was simply pointing out was, the reception of the mark of the beast will not be a mere economic thing. There will be some aspect of worship or allegiance or devotion or idolatry that will have to be given to this coming world leader and the government he represents. So, I think that point's valid. All the time, you'll go to some event and they'll give you some kind of bracelet. And with that bracelet you get food or you get books at their book table or whatever it might be. It's not just a matter of receiving something that enables you to participate in the economy. Revelation chapter 14, chapter 16, and chapter 19 make it pretty clear that also there's a linkage to worshiping the beast. Now, this is what I would consider. And again, I'm not here to judge exactly how John MacArthur said this, but I would state it like this that unless there is an aspect of worship involved in this, it's not the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast has an aspect of worship and allegiance and idolatry to this coming world leader and to his system. So, for that reason, I would say that unless there's a worship aspect, it's not the mark of the beast, but everybody who does receive the mark of the beast will have this terrible destiny that the book of Revelation describes. Now, that deals with the mark of the beast kind of question, at least in my mind. Let me kind of get a little bit back to the point, because uh, our questioner, which is really a friend of mine, spoken on the phone a few times uh, in Florida, and it's nice to get your uh, questions and your responses, Gino. And thanks for the message there on Easter Sunday. I appreciated that, brother. In any regard, what I'm just trying to get at is simply this, is that his bigger question was not just about the mark of the beast, but if we think someone's wrong on a particular point of doctrine, um, such as something having to do with prophecy. And by the way, when it comes to biblical prophecy, end times events, what theologians call eschatology, Listen, this, there is a wide variety of opinion among those who legitimately take the Bible seriously. Okay, so you have this whole aspect of uh, what, what we have together with different opinions of biblical prophecy. You have difference of opinions when it comes to spiritual gifts and their validity today. The same gentleman, John MacArthur, who taught this, these words um, that I think were technically true, but maybe prone to a little bit of misunderstanding. Um, these, these, uh, he would also have a pretty big disagreement with me and I with him over the issue of spiritual gifts and the idea of which spiritual gifts might continue into the present day. Now, I would just say this. If you believe someone like that is truly to be a dangerous teacher, then you're absolutely free to not recommend him to people or for some particular areas to not recommend him. Because look, I'll tell you this about John MacArthur, is the areas where he is good, which are legion, which are many, he's very good. 
I mean, he's a man who takes the Bible seriously and takes heaven and hell seriously and preaches seriously. And though I would have some substantial disagreement with him on some issues, and it's not just me. I mean, who am I? But, But just though there would be some areas of disagreement, in my mind, it doesn't take away appreciably from the massive good he does in the body of Christ at large. But, but we should feel free to say, here is a teacher whom I will not recommend, but I won't regard them as a dangerous heretic. I think that's the big issue I'm trying to say. Let's reserve the term heretic for the people who are teaching things that will lead people to hell. I think that is a very important principle to take. So again, um, I I think we should always be careful to look at the whole of a person's ministry, not to judge them by one or two areas where we might have disagreement. Yet nevertheless, we should feel free to have our disagreements, to talk about them, to to voice them, and, and even to recommend to people that we would be friends with or associate with, hey, I wouldn't really recommend this teacher to you over here. Here's some other people that I would much more likely recommend. I think that's entirely fine. We have the freedom in Christ to do that as long as we're not slandering our brothers or sisters by calling them something that they're not, such as heretics. Okay, good. I hope that's helpful for you, Gino. And again, God bless you. Here's another question that came in from Monica. Monica kind of raises question, kind of a comment, kind of a question. And, and it was great coming around the Easter season, probably relevant to a message that's on our YouTube channel about Pontius Pilate. It says this, it says, could Pilate's compulsion to give in to the crowd be that the Roman government was founded on democratic principles? If yes, this is one of the most tragic cases of tyranny by a majority of men. Well, Monica, that's an interesting question. I, I would just say this. From my understanding historically, the Roman government was probably less democratic than you might think. You know, the um, origins of democracy, at least in a modern Western sense, are found in ancient Greece. And the Greeks did contribute a lot to the Romans in their idea of democracy, of having it be more than just a ruler. And in the days of the Roman Republic, it was supposed to be the law and the Senate that ruled the uh, Roman Empire. Uh, But when the Roman uh, Republic essentially was shattered by Julius Caesar and his successors, it truly became an imperium, an empire ruled more by a man than by the Senate or by the law. In any regard, let me say this. You really are onto something, though, because it's fascinating. When we find the historical profiles of this man, Pontius Pilate, we find that he was a brutal man, that he was a man who dealt with life as if it was cheap, who had very little regard for the Jewish rulers or the sensitivities of the people. Yet here in the Gospels, we find Pilate strangely concerned about the sensibilities of the religious leaders among the Jews. We find Pilate, you know, kind of be a different man somewhat than what we see from his profile in secular history. Now, I think there's a simple reason for that, perhaps many contributing reasons, but one of them simply this, that Pontius Pilate feared the multitude. 
the religious leaders who handed Jesus over to Pontius Pilate, they were really clever. They know that Pilate wasn't afraid of them. They knew that Pilate wasn't afraid of Jesus. What was Jesus going to do to him? But what Pilate was afraid of was the multitude, the crowd. Because if they made for riots in Jerusalem, and that was a real possibility, especially around Passover time, if they made for riots in Jerusalem, it could cause a lot of trouble, and a lot of trouble personally for Pilate. So I find it a fascinating thing that Pilate did fear the multitude. And uh, isn't this something that is really instructive for us? How the fear of man oftentimes trips us up so often. God give us the strength to love our fellow human beings, especially our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, but not to fear them, but to put Jesus Christ in that position of reverence and respect that none other can touch. All right, let me get to another question. Uh, this question comes from a reader of the website named Jennifer. And Jennifer has this very interesting comment. She says, when reading Exodus, it would frustrate me when so often the people would cry out that they should have stayed in Egypt and they were brought out to die over and over. She says, I couldn't help but think that they must be sick. The term Stockholm Syndrome or institutionalization went through my mind. How can you be oppressed for 400 years, killing your firstborn sons and not be effective mentally? Yet nothing about sick minds is addressed, only hardness of hearts. What do you think? Am I missing something here? Now, she also asked if I wonder about sociopathic conditions or mental illness among some Bible characters. Listen, let me say this, Jennifer. I'll deal with your second question first. Honestly, when we read the Bible, it seems like some of the characters in there deal with bouts of what we would call mental illness. Um, we find depression. We find melancholy. We find great outbursts of violence. We find insane jealousy. We find all sorts of bizarre things going on with some of the characters of the Bible that make us wonder, was there not some aspect of mental illness? Now, I want you to know that um, whatever we might term mental illness in our day-to-day, -day, uh, this is something that's been part of the human condition in some respect or another since the beginning of time. And, and it doesn't disqualify somebody from being in God's service or being used by God. Um, there have been some profound frailties among some of God's servants. And Obviously, we would say none of this would be something that would contribute to violence or something like that. That, that isn't uh, appropriate for a servant of God. But, but some of the more, maybe we might call depressive, some of the more anxious, some of the more, uh, I'm going to use this word just in a very qualified sense, uh, some of the more tormented souls, God has used those and he will use those. Now, having to do with the people of Israel coming out of Egypt, having something like the Stockholm Syndrome, listen, Jennifer, I think you're onto something with that. And let me say why. I think you're onto something with that because, because we can't discount the profound effect 400 years of slavery had upon the Israelite people. If you think about it, the uh, span of slavery in the United States was roughly, I'm just throwing out a very rough figure, but let's just say roughly it was about 250 years 
from colonial times to the Civil War. Now, that 250 years of slavery has what many people would say, I know this is somewhat debated, but many people would say that those 250 years of slavery have repercussions that last to the present day, even though the Emancipation Proclamation was signed into effect some 150 years ago. Yet, uh, the 250 years of slavery had a profound effect. Consider this. The people of Israel were slaves in Egypt for some 400 years. It had to have an effect on their thinking, on their habits, on their character. And this is one of the reasons why God gave them his great law at Mount Sinai. I want you to remember something, that it was never God's intention for the people of Israel to go straight from Egypt to the promised land. Sometimes we say that, you know, if they wouldn't have been slowed down by unbelief and all that, it could have taken six months or something like that. I just want to tell you something. It was in God's plan that they come to Mount Sinai and spend a little more than a year at Mount Sinai where God could give them his laws, his institutions, all the rest of it that's bound up in the Mosaic law, and he can make a covenant with them and give them a priesthood and a tabernacle and organize them into ranks. And what God was doing was God was beginning the transformation from taking Israel from being a slave people to what I like to call a promised land people. So there was a lot of habits of thought and thinking and perhaps just sort of emotional, if you want to call injuries and all the rest of it, that had to be dealt with it. And that was part of God's redemption process in the lives of his people, as I believe it's his redemption process in the life of his people today. I, I hope you believe the same thing, Jennifer. So again, thank you for your question on that. Let me go further, see whatever questions we have here. Um, this is a question that comes from a few different quarters, and it comes mainly because of the a video I did on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Again, if you haven't taken a look at that, and if this subject interests you at all, go to our YouTube channel, look it up. I, I, I made that video in response to, I think, some not only wrong teaching that's going out about that, but some dangerous teaching. But it, it leads to many more questions. And here's Susan's question. Susan asked this, Pastor, what are your teachings on abuse in marriage? What is the difference between constructive abandonment versus abandonment? What if the abusing spouse doesn't wish to leave the marriage but hasn't stopped abusing? All right, well, let me just say, Susan, all right, first I have to sort of take the camera back a little bit and just say that these are matters that need to be talked about with specific situations with pastoral counsel diving into them as deeply as they need to go. I mean, Susan, I, I know you understand that. I know you understand that I can't really give specific counsel over the internet for specific situations with all the complexities that are involved. No, th this is something that needs a deep dive with some wise pastoral care that is rooted in the Bible and in the strength of the Christian life. Okay, so that's just kind of the, the, the opening statement. But let me say this, say this Susan. Um, I can say without hesitation that it is never God's will for 
a person in a marriage. Normally we think of it as being a woman, but it's not always a woman, but a person in a marriage to endure and suffer under and remain under physical abuse. Um, it's just not God's will. And a wife or sometimes husbands are victims of physical abuse. Well, if they are victims of physical abuse and need to leave for their safety, they should, they must do so. They need to find advocates among the body of Christ that will really come and help them in this very desperate situation. And, and husband, if, if you have, if you do physically abuse your wife, you, you got to be very, very broken and repentant over that. And you got to be very accountable about never doing it again. I'm not saying that it's impossible to rebuild a marriage after that, but separation in the case of physical abuse, I think is something that is very, very important. Now, the term abuse is used in aspects much broader than physical abuse. It's very common now we talk about verbal abuse, emotional abuse, psychological abuse. And these phenomena may be real. It's not hard to picture somebody genuinely verbally abusing someone else. But it's also easy to see that these terms could be misused, could be misused by someone who wanted to paint their spouse in a very negative light and, and make something big out of something that's very small. And so, again, this speaks back to the need for getting what you might call boots on the ground for a real examination and even intervention in the marriage just to deal with this in an appropriate way to really get down to the bottom. This is why people need to be involved in local churches where they can have their lives open to others and other people open to their lives. But no, a, a person in a marriage does not have to live under the endurance. God does not want somebody to submit to physical abuse in a marriage. Just no. Now, you ask the question, what if the abusing spouse doesn't wish to leave the marriage but hasn't stopped abusing? Listen, I would just say this, that if somebody can't get control in their life over this area, then they shouldn't be together. And it questions whether or not they are really committed to the marriage. I mean, this, this is something that really needs to be revisited in that sense. So, Susan, these are difficult questions, not only because they, they need to have a deep dive on the individual situation, but they're also difficult because of the heartbreak and the, the pain involved in all this. So I don't know if this is you, Susan, if it's not you, if it's someone that you know. I, I pray for whoever is suffering under this, whether it's you or somebody else, that God gives you grace and wisdom, delivers you from this abuse. God wants you to be delivered from this abusive situation. And whether that means deliverance by the transformation of your spouse or deliverance in some other way, I, I, I would always pray for and aim for the best. But God does not want somebody to endure under physical abuse. That needs immediate and very focused attention. All right, now, that's going to be about it for the questions. I do just have a few things to say. You know, I, I am a very blessed man. 
I get wonderful emails from people who, you know, just send me just, again, it's just wonderful things. They, uh, a gentleman that he calls himself anonymous, get it? Anonymous. He just sent me the most kind and encouraging email. So anonymous, if that's you out there, thanks. Thanks for that email. I really, really appreciate it. And thanks to the other people who send out those kind words that the online commentary, the audio video resources, whatever it is. Uh, and I got to say, for me, some of the biggest news in this past week is uh, the commentary on the book of Romans went up on the website in Arabic. The commentary on the Gospel of John went up on the website in Tamil. And the commentary on the book of First John went up on the website in Chinese. It's wonderful. It's wonderful to see uh, the translation work progressing along. It's wonderful to see more and more people coming to the website. I, I unashamedly ask you to simply keep praying for the work of Enduring Word. Keep praying for me as I continue to work with this Bible commentary. Pray for our translators. Uh, pray for the supply for the work on every level. Uh, we are very blessed by what God's doing. And we're grateful for everybody who shares in that blessing. Thanks so much for joining. I can tell you that as far as my calendar is concerned, I will be live next Thursday. Uh, I know what the book of James says. We should say, God willing, and if I live, I will be live on Thursday to have a live chat broadcast. I hope you can join us. And thanks for joining today with this time of questions and answers. God bless you. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.